Hello and welcome back to another episode of Honey, Are You Happy? Now today I am joined by the amazing George Mycock, who is the founder of Maya Minds, a mental health organisation that aims to improve awareness and knowledge of exercise and mental health issues, such as muscle dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction and eating disorders. And he started this up after experiencing these issues himself. George is also a PhD candidate at the University of Worcester, where he is studying muscularity-orientated psychosocial issues in men and how to provide care to these groups. George also works with charities like Mind, First Step, CD, and the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation to create campaigns, tools, and other resources in this area. Now, this This episode is absolutely incredible. I cannot wait for you to hear the wisdom of George and all that he has through his lived experience and his research and practice. Um, Grab a cup of tea, get comfy, because this is jam-packed full of information that you don't want to miss. Hello, George, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Joss. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I feel like... um, it must have been 2019 we first like connected because of your podcast actually Mm. and um it's been amazing to kind of like see your work throughout the years and how far you've come and everything you do because you've got such a a cool story and you do so much within the kind of mental health and um, exercise world um I wasn't expecting compliments from the start it makes me feel weird but thank you (laughs) (laughs) it's not it's nice to like I suppose it is is nice like you know um meeting each other and like the early stages of both our like kind of careers around in this stuff and seeing us both morph over time it was pretty cool yeah definitely I can start insulting you if that would help as well like, yes please a couple insults wanker. just take the mick out of my last name a few times <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be fine um amazing so for our listeners would you mind giving us a brief overview of who you are and also just your story Okay, wow, well, a brief overview of uh, who I am. God, a philosophical discussion. Um, no, so yeah, I'm George, uh, George Mycock, funny last name, hence why I was mentioning. I'm sure it's written on there. You've all kind of done a double take when you first saw the pod come up. Um, I'm the founder of Myominds, which is a, a mental health organization that works in exercise and mental health. So I tend to do, or we tend to do a lot of stuff around um, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, disordered eating, and exercise addiction, compulsive exercise, that kind of thing within the exercising world. So I'm, I'm really interested in the kind of fitness community and um, athletes and all that jazz. Um, and yeah, through my mind, I do lots of stuff. Um, I do several research projects. Um, I work with mind on um, some things around developing healthy relationships with exercise, which I can talk about at some point if we want to. Um, I'm working with Nottingham Uni on a tool to train personal trainers. Um, I do different research projects and all sorts of different things. Um, but then I also do like awareness raising stuff. So um, we've got, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to I don't know when this pod's coming out, so it'll probably be done by then. But for Eating Disorders Awareness Week, we're partnering with um, First Step CD to do a whole week around like gym culture and around how that relates to disordered eating and eating disorders and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and then my, my own story is uh, basically I have 
lived experience with um, muscularity orientated forms of disordered eating, um, body dysmorphia, otherwise known as muscle dysmorphia, although I'm not officially diagnosed, which is another thing we can talk about because it's really hard to get diagnosed. Um, and, and also like the kind of exercise addiction, compulsive exercise, all that jazz. Um, basically name a, like a disordered symptom to do with food and exercise. And I've probably done it at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you're absolutely smashing it and <laughs> you're just, yeah, you're like the go-to person when I think of things like um, like anything to do with muscle dysmorphia or body dysmorphia or the eating disorder community in fitness, which I think is such an underrepresented group. And mm. it's an area where I just think it's riddled <laughs> with um, people masking um, mental health illnesses especially eating disorders and, and body image struggles I can say it, it definitely it de- like you know, it's it's such an interesting thing and you know, this could be a whole you know we could do four hours podcast about this um but there is the fact that within the fitness community itself so first of all like you say so many people are you know you could call it masking mental health issues because a lot of people go to exercise because we we've termed you know there's a the whole big exercises medicine thing that i was reading about today actually was originally coined in america in 2007 has been kind of pushed over 40 different countries this idea of exercises medicine this campaign teaching people that exercise is a way of being healthy and that it's good for everyone and these kind of things so people who have mental health issues are likely to turn to exercise because you know all your doctors and all the media sources all say that it's great for you Mm -hmm. so of course they're going to turn to it so that's one thing Um, and then on top of that a lot of the behaviors that we see nowadays in the just like you know um fitness world a lot of the behaviors are like you know kind of at face value disordered in that you know it's a it's around restrictive eating and you know um being very kind of conscious of what you're eating when you're eating it how you're eating it you know all these different things and down to you know just very minute details mm-hmm. um, and and so much of it is about sharing your you know people you call it progress and and, and the other really interesting thing about this and i'll shut up in a second is that you know we risk pathologizing some of these behaviors because for some people it's really healthy. In fact, you know, weightlifting and and these kind of things is often something that, as you all know, is something that people try and push people who have like eating disorders towards because it's a way of, of exercise being around strength and performance rather than changing your body or your, you know, your weight. Um, so it's yeah, interesting. And I think with that, the line is so fine to cross between healthy and unhealthy and I got into weightlifting because my brother kind of called me out when I was at university and I was a little cardio bunny. And he's like, Joss, I think what you're wanting to do and the results you're wanting to see are actually going to be from doing this form of exercise. And a lot of that was then buddying up with my brother who taught me things and kind of through that process, learning about my body, learning about nutrition. And that was what was really helpful. And then it Mm. went disordered again because I was like, and now I can mask with bodybuilding. And, you know, again, it was coming back to finding a balance and like knowing what my intention was and like why I was going to the gym. And actually, am I here for the right reason or am I here for the wrong reason? And then being able to hold myself accountable to that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is you you call it your intention um or I, I sometimes call it the like meaning behind the exercise it's not you know it's not necessarily because 
that's the thing as well, isn't it? It's so interesting. And I saw on your pod, I haven't listened to it yet, but I really want to. You did a podcast with um, Ed. I listened to the very first bit of it, um, just, um, and you said he was the first guy on your pod. I really want to listen to that because, you know, people like Ed, who are professional bodybuilders or, you know, people who are competing in bodybuilding or professional athletes or just athletes in general, you need to do more exercise than other people or you need to do certain types of exercise. So there isn't necessarily a an amount of exercise or an amount of um, control in your eating or whatever that is the bad thing. It's that, like you say, your intention behind it. You know, people can do a lot of exercise as an athlete and actually have a really healthy relationship with that. Um, but again, it's that, you know, you can't, it's really hard. The, the difference is so subtle between wanting to do more and needing to do more. Like it's so tiny and it's so hard to recognize that in yourself and other people. Yeah, definitely. Going back to kind of your story, I know that for you, having to lose weight was actually part of like the beginning of your journey. And then that kind of was almost like the starting point to then kind of being obsessed and fixated on on working out. Yeah, yeah. So um, nice segue. Uh, <laughs> as a fellow podcast host, I'll give you credit there, or credit to you. Um, the yeah so for for me i when i was 13 i I'd say, i always say i broke my back it's easier to explain it that way but i had like a a fracture across my spine that fully kind of went i think i don't really know i was young when i was told about it but went when i was playing rugby and because of that i was out for about a year um i think it's like just over 12 months um basically just lying on my back for the whole time and having surgery about nine months in and then recovering for a few months um and during that time after breaking my after breaking my back i gained a significant amount of weight um mostly because i wasn't i couldn't move because it hurt a lot um and um you know a lot of people didn't know what to get me when and they all felt sorry for me so lots of people just bought me food and i just laid there and ate food all the time so you know naturally i, I gained a lot of weight um and you know, when I went, you know, I was, I had the year off school as well, um, at the time, which was also difficult, but when I went back to school, I gained all this weight and, you know, we know in the society a little bit at the moment, people who gain weight are seen as just bad and in, in general, it's just a bad thing. Um, and I felt like, you know, no one really bullied me, but I felt like I'd lost some respect from people like people were treating me differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I attributed at least, you know, the 13, probably 14 year old me then, um attributed all that loss of you know how people were treating me to the fact that I gained weight so I thought I'll start losing weight then and that'll sort it um so I started kind of watching what I ate and and um eating a bit less and I learned about counting my my calories and counting macros and those kind of things I started exercising more and I found that as I lost weight people gave me more of that respect back that I was looking for people gave me more compliments um and the the thing i found as well was the faster i lost weight the more compliments i got and the more kind of you know um yeah more intense compliments i'll call them um you know to the the one that i always talk about is um my surgeon once had a meeting with me and you know he'd weighed me before and weighed me after and he tried to he kind of joked that he wants me to come in and give a talk to his other um like patients and tell them how to lose weight as fast as I was little did he know by that point I was barely eating anything and exercising multiple times a day and you know he didn't know that you know so you know I'm not I'm not critiquing him too much but you know he that that was the level of praise I was getting it was a 14 year old boy who you know I just thought oh amazing okay so I'll keep doing this everyone loves me for this yeah definitely and there's so many parallels 
I can draw from your story and mine because our minds started the same sort of way if I was was not overweight at school but I definitely was one of the curvier girls and so for my prom I started to lose a little bit of weight and very quickly found I could use it as a form of control and then compliments started coming in like thick and fast and I think as well when I went and finally got a diagnosis of anorexia it was predominantly females that were being diagnosed how did that process go for you and how did someone pick up on the fact that you you know you were losing a significant amount of weight and things weren't okay or healthy anymore yeah a great great question um I think it's it's really difficult it's really complicated I think and so sorry to answer your question straight off it was it definitely was difficult for people to to notice that I had a problem and for me to notice that I had a problem I don't think i we didn't during that whole phase of me losing weight. It, it got to the point where it had to get to the point where I was binge eating and, and to the point where I was suicidal for, for me to recognize that it was a problem, which you kind of came from you know, over several years since then. Um, but I think a, a big kind of part of this is it comes from kind of toxic masculinity, kind of patriarchal stuff in, in the sense that for when men are um, being strict with their food and being strict with their exercise it's seen as determination as a as a man as a form of masculinity as a form of like pushing your masculine power ahead and it can be labeled in this other way and um, where for women it might not be might not be so and it's a way in which you know some guys and um, some people in general when they hear the word patriarchy or patriarchal they think that i'm suddenly going to be like oh men are horrible and uh, you know i don't want people to think that i'm suddenly going to be you know but i think it's a great it's a great kind of introduction to this because i think it has such a bad taste for so many men um for different reasons and this is a great way of introducing the fact that actually patriarchy is bad for everyone and then this is one of the reasons why because for men it's it's labeling us as people who have who have to be better and have to be strong and powerful and all these things and then that also means that when we behave in ways that are disordered but could be masters power and strength then we can be and we can be strung along down disordered paths that actually are bad for us but told praise that oh you're a man working really hard to make his body look a certain way yeah. and i think actually that that had this negative impact on me so yeah, I think I think that's part of the reason why it was so hard for me to find help was because people just assumed that I was fine because of because of me being a man. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Wow. <laughs> it's just there's so much I could pull out from that. And it's such like a fascinating topic. So the fact that again, it's like the same with women in the fact that a lot of it is about, you know, feeling well, for me, I guess it was about feeling good in my body, but also almost being a bit afraid of like people poking fun of my body and having bullying in the past, mainly from men about mm. parts of my body and how they looked. And that kind of being a way like exercise and food being a way to almost like harm myself or be like, you're not good enough or you need to change. Um, you're not lovable, all those kind of core beliefs or what we call core beliefs in psychology. Mm. And part of my recovery was learning to you know always just like appreciate myself and you know replace those core beliefs of like healthier belief systems about myself so mm. would you say the similar it's similar for men in the fact that it kind of links back to those kind of core beliefs about what masculinity is and how they should be turning up uh, showing up as a man and if so what needs to change for kind of toxic <laughs> masculinity and like 
body dysmorphia and muscle dysmorphia in men. Mm. I'm I'm, la- I'm laughing because this is basically my PhD topic. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, Can I be in the credits? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, you've solved it. Thank you. Um, no, I, I. But also the problem is that you know I, it's almost it's very difficult to answer, which is why I'm doing a PhD on it to try and help answer it. Um, I even know where to start. One thing that I want to actually start with, and maybe I'll come back to it, is is linked to it, but it just made me think of it because. Yesterday, I was reading um, a paper on muscle dysmorphia, a study in, in Canada, and the, they used the muscle dysmorphic disorder inventory. Um, and they they looked at um, men, women, and like transgender people. Um, and so within the this inventory, this kind of scales, people who don't know, like it's like a thing that you fill out, you know, like a test basically to say, to measure your levels of muscle dysmorphia or these kind of things. Um, they have little subsections. There's drive for size or drive for muscularity. So like that, that wanting to be more muscular and like, you know, being obsessive around it. There's appearance intolerance, which is feeling bad about the way you look and being kind of worried about other people seeing how you look and that kind of fear. And then there's functional impairment, which is how much it affects your life. So it has that negative impact on your life. So like stops you from going to school or stops you going to your job, et cetera. And the thing that we see in so many studies and they saw in this study was that if I'm just looking at the men and women, um, is that men have overall higher muscle dysmorphia normally. Um, but they, they specifically have higher drive for size and functional impairments. So they tend to be more concerned about trying to get bigger and they tend to be more affected in their life because of that. So they tend to be going to the gym more and doing these things and it affecting their life. But the women tend to have higher levels of appearance intolerance, which kind of your, your story reminded me of, because you said you were scared of people seeing your body and, and stuff. So that's that like appearance intolerance where for me, it, 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 that was there. But it, for me, it was more that I was so obsessed with doing more. And, and I think that's where I think part of it can, and this is how I'm going to tie it in, part of it comes to this masculine, these masculine ideals, these masculine values, because some of the masculine values are around work ethic and pushing yourself really hard and, and pushing through pain, being able to endure pain. So when we adhere ourselves to those, and we want to show that, like show masculinity in some kind of way, we might want to push ourselves more and more extremely. And this is something we see in the fitness industry because in my, and this is part of what I'm doing with my PhD, I think the the values of the fitness industry and the values of masculinity almost like interlap. They're, they're pretty much the same. You know, they're pushing yourself really hard enduring through pain ignoring how you feel because you need to do one more set or no pain no gain those kind of things um yeah yeah, i feel like i didn't answer your question there but (laughs) interesting it's interesting to think about how the language we use as well um because i'm even thinking like hashtags it was it like strong not skinny or something like that Mm. and you're like well some people are just genetically thin like Mm. it's not their fault and it's almost kind of those subliminal messages that there is an ideal that is a better um there's a way that we should be there's a way that we should look there's a way that we should work out when Mm. and it kind of takes the focus away from exercising in a mindful way and listening to our body and thinking actually do I just need to stretch today or rest or this weight's really heavy for me I'm not lifting it properly I'm just gonna sit out the next set Mm. it's kind of and it's it's interesting I've even been scared to take deload weeks because I think oh gosh, if people see me in the gym lifting lighter, what, you know, oh my gosh, no, I'll just keep going. And then Mm. I'll, you know, screw up my central nervous system and (laughs) pick up a cold and be off for like two weeks. Um, But that that picks up a really interesting point as well, that, you know, 
I think a lot of these, you know, when we talk about disordered exercise patterns in anyone, we often talk about the results that they're trying to achieve. So people are trying to get thinner, people are trying to get more muscular, people are trying to get leaner, X, Y, and Z. But there's also a really key point, which is the, the actual, the act of exercising as like a display because that going to the gym, being in the gym is is like you gain stuff from that like you're saying in that you if people see me lifting heavier weights then that is confirming to them that i am what i want them to think that i am you know because i'm doing this because they you know if some you go you know when i used to go i used to go early in the morning like i want to be the first one in there and i used to be obsessed with this idea that other people will come in the gym and always see me in there like before them and think how does this guy ever leave the gym and you know it was that act of the gym of acts of training and that's a key part in this as well and that adds into that meaning of you know are you are you going to the gym because you want to or are you going because you need people to see you going to the gym <laughs> like you know that can be another aspect of this and yeah. again it's i don't want to Part, part of the issue we're talking about this and I, I you know I've been tossing with this recently is I don't want people to think that I'm pathologizing these things because people might go to the gym and might think about these things and sometimes that's okay um but I think it's just a combination of them if they do start to impair your life you know that functional impairment if they do start to negatively affect the way you live that's the problem and so I, try, I just try to reiterate that as we're talking about yeah, it definitely. I guess but do you think there are definitely cases then with this whole like body dysmorphia and muscle dysmorphia where there are too many men in the gym who should be actually in therapy? <laughs> like instead of going and lifting heavy every single day, they should probably spend one of those hours in a therapy room. Like for me, I sometimes think like, is it masking an insecurity? Is there something else there that is not to do with their body that they're taking out on their body thinking that if they're bigger, if they're stronger, if they're leaner, it will all be fine. Mm, well, this, yeah, this, this actually brings in some really interesting research. My, my answer in short is yes, I suppose, but uh, with add-ons. Um, so the, my actual, the, the reason I am studying my PhD starting tomorrow from the day we're recording this at Worcester Uni is because um, <laughs> two of my supervisors um, wrote this whole literature around um, life analysis of people with high drive for muscle or like people who really want to get more, more muscular and, and I read that and I was so like infatuated in that research and I was like I need to see where these people are and I found they were in the UK and I was like I want to do my PhD with these people um so that's what I am doing uh but so within this research they the one that I'm thinking of specifically they got uh I, I can't remember how many men it was I want to say 20 but they got a load of men and they did what called, is called a life course analysis where they basically get them to tell their life story and then they I think that's quite you know I very bearing in mind I was one of those people they're that's quite like it feels quite funny that there's all these like insecure men lifting weights and stuff um and and I I get that because it, it is kind of funny because the way we we see them because I think part of the reason it's it's seen as funny is because they're not very nice usually. So one of the things that links with muscle dysmorphia is um, narcissism, or specifically vulnerable narcissism, and which you'll, I imagine you may know the difference, but I'll explain for people who don't. So there's two different kinds of narcissism. There's, there's grandiose narcissism, which is your stereotypical narcissist, someone who believes they're the shit, will take no, it doesn't matter what you say, I don't give a shit, I'm, I'm the best thing in the world. And then there's vulnerable narcissists who are people who deep down feel that they have no self-worth, but they 
try to take on narcissistic like behaviors of talking about themselves all the time, bigging up what they do, all those kind of things in order to, to, to prove that they're okay, but they still behave like narcissists. And that's something I, I had, and I still, still think I do struggle with um, now in that I feel like I have to big myself up in order to feel okay with myself, but I'm, I'm working on it. It's tied to my muscularity, um, my muscularity orientated kind of issues. So, you know, one of the, one of the issues is that these men don't tend to be very nice. They tend to be quite horrible, like not nice people. They're very narcissistic. And I think you're lovely. <laughs> Although I'm, I've, I've been working on it. That's why I wasn't lovely. Um, but yeah, working on it. Is that uh, you saying you, I was a cunt, but. <laughs> I'd, 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 like a thousand percent. I was a cunt. Oh, no. um, like, like, but, that, that, but that's, that's, that's part of why I do what I do. And that's part yeah. of why I try and talk about this. No, I love because... your honesty. I just, I love it. I know, but it's, it's true because you know, it's great for you know i i try and push this message because i think we have two options with these people who are cunts like if we're going to use that word um i'm just going to define all these men as cunts so that's that's the word i'm when i'm referring to them and when i'm referring to a cunt now i'm I'm referring to those men specifically um so we've had all these cunts and like myself and hopefully not less of a cunt now um and we want we our options are either we just say i just a bunch of cunts let's like fuck them off just leave them over here leave them on their own or we could try and help them move to be less like that like i hope i am and kind of build some self-awareness and and work on other things um and i think part of the issue is that they become this joke they become just a bunch of cons that we laugh at and say oh they're just insecure little boys who who are lifting weights and being big and you know covering them you know you know what i mean but I think, yeah, I think there's more there. I think we can actually, you know, if we can, if we can unlock some of the niceness out of that and find actually what's in there and, and we can actually create this whole, like, you know, this whole group of humans who are actually all right human beings now who currently are not. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I'm, I feel bad now. It kind of is quite a strong word <laughs> to use. And like, I'm obviously as an assistant psychologist and I work with people with many different difficulties. And I find I have great empathy for people who are struggling with any sort of internal battle or body image issue. Cause it's basically like being at war with yourself the whole time and then having to find other means to give yourself a sense of worth. Mm. Interestingly is, is muscle dysmorphia then also linked with other things like, substance abuse and steroid abuse and other kind of behaviors that would you know enhance physique or even alcoholism and stuff that's escapism mm. well i'm not 100 percent sure about alcoholism but it's definitely linked to um steroid use and i i do think substance use been mo- is i've read about substance use in like a meta-analysis but not delved into it too much so i won't touch on that too much because i don't know fully um but it's definitely linked to steroid use um and they in the kind of steroid use literature it tends to be there's kind of multiple factors that feed into this but it tends there's lots of different things that come in and um, there's a guy called jeff bates who did his whole phd on this um shout out to jeff if he's out there i've never actually met him but i really want to um but he did a whole phd on this subject and he kind of came up with this this overarching um design about so maybe you could get jeff on the pod on your pod i want to get him on mine so if you do let me know and i'll get him on mine as well um (laughs) but he basically explained how you know there's several different factors that can lead into it so there's the kind of personal factors which is you know do you want to be 
absurdly muscular you know do you know do you believe that steroids are are okay do you know much about steroids these kind of things then there's also kind of like social factors so like your friends and people around you people you hang out with you know if all your friends are taking steroids then you're probably more likely to take steroids etc um then it kind of goes out to your gym so like you're like your i forget what the word he uses but basically like institutions that you and your friends hang out in so if your gym is a big steroidy gym where everyone takes gear then you're probably more likely to to take steroids um and then kind of goes on and out but and i think muscle dysmorphia and the kind of muscularity stuff likely injects itself into that personal one the one in the, the kind of the main one at the start in that you're probably more likely you'll it definitely means you want to be more muscular it definitely means you're probably more likely to research about steroids and learn about them you're probably more likely to it's going to affect that social section as well of that you're going to make more friends with gym goers and probably make more friends with people who know about steroids or learn about steroids or, or taking steroids or currently take steroids and it's going to kind of influence you in that way um so i think those, those are probably the reasons why people are but yeah to answer your question it, it does link very heavily to and it makes sense doesn't it you know um part part of the issues with muscle dis I'm, I'm using the term muscle dysmorphia because that's the one people know this is again a long thing but i'm going to keep it short there's a kind of a, there's a debate about different terms and how they kind of um different subsections of how people experience these things and actually muscle dysmorphia is quite constricting and it's really hard to get diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia because of that and that's one of the, the issues with it but looking at um, the kind of disordered eating side of it but i'm just going to call I am going to really interrupt this podcast for just a moment of your time to remind you that if you yourself are struggling with muscle dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, disordered eating or exercise addiction, then you don't need to suffer anymore. Head on over to the show notes and book in for a free coaching consultation with myself, 45 minutes over Zoom to chat through what you're struggling with and find solutions to move yourself forward. There's also a link there to a free journaling guide. Now, journaling was such a big thing for me in my recovery from anorexia. It really just helped me get everything in my head onto paper and sort through some really challenging thoughts, as well as to bring some gratitude to my days. If you don't know where to start or it sounds a bit airy-fairy to you, go to the link in the show notes and get your free guide. As always, guys, please, if you're enjoying the content, give this podcast a like, follow it, and make sure you share it on your socials. Now, without further ado, let's go back to the episode. So it's kind of obvious why people would take steroids because when we look at the kind of disordered eating side, what we often talk about, and it works with muscle dysmorphia as well, is that one of the issues with muscularity stuff is that there's a kind of contrasting goals in in it which is slightly different to a lot of disordered eating and a lot of kind of um, other body ideals i suppose or like body types people are maybe striving for with disordered behaviors is that you want to get both bigger like bigger musculature and you also want to be like leaner and lose like kind of lose body fat um, and to do both of them at the same time through like exercise and nutrition is almost impossible, if not just really, really, really hard without taking some kind of exogenous, you know, taking steroids, basically. So it kind of makes sense that a lot of people turn to them because it's the only way to to achieve the goal at the same time for a lot of people. Um, so it kind of, you know, it ends up being quite obvious 
Like, what you, you, yeah, I guess the question more is why do certain people not take them who have these issues than people who do take them? Like, I didn't take them myself, and I always un never quite understand why. Um, although I think it's probably because I've luckily met a friend who was my training partner for um, some time who had taken them before and he used to tell me all of his horror stories about when it went wrong and all the like negative effects that happened to him. Yeah. So I think that that helped. Are there any other kind of symptoms of muscle dysmorphia that maybe aren't as well talked about that people might experience? Oh, good question. I suppose some uh, kind of factors I can talk about. So for muscle dysmorphia specifically, I'll kind of outline what I mean by the whole smalling, the, the kind of small criterion and that. So muscle dysmorphia specifically um, is a form of body dysmorphic disorder um, within the DSM-5, which is what I'm sure people who listen to this podcast may know. Um, but there's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5, which is what people use to diagnose um, people with like mental health thingies. Um, and within that, there's the body dysmorphic disorder, which is the idea of being kind of um, severely distressed by certain parts of your body and the way your body looks. And it can be about all sorts of different things. Um, and then muscle dysmorphia is a specifier for that. So someone fits all the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder. They go, okay, that person's got body dysmorphic disorder. They'll then ask them, oh, does it happen to be about the your muscularity and then if they go yes and then they answer a few more questions then they go oh okay so actually it's body dysmorphic disorder but also specifically muscle dysmorphia okay um and part of the issue with that is that one of the criteria for body dysmorphic disorder is that it could not be otherwise explained as a form of eating disorder so if that person has any like form of disordered eating or anything around eating, then they can't have body dysmorphic disorder and therefore can't have muscle dysmorphia. But and surely the two go hand in hand. Thank you. And that's, that's literally what I was going to say is if people with, with who have muscle dysmorphia tend to be, as we've spoken about, issues with masculinity. They move into the fitness industry as a way to try and push that. Yeah. And all of us have spoken, we, we, we all know, and everyone who's in the fitness industry, that you know, people talk about, oh, it's 90% nutrition. It's all about food. It's all about your diet and stuff. So like almost all of those people have issues with food. <laughs> so you, it's, it's so hard to be diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia because of that. Um, so that that's to, I guess I guess one of the interesting factors about muscle dysmorphia that people might not know is it doesn't have disordered eating, even though even though it does. Yeah. Um, but technically, it doesn't. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Which makes it really hard. Yeah. And so then people would present, well, they might not even meet criteria for eating disorder, so it would just go completely be overlooked. Yeah, and then yeah, so what happens is they'll they'll get like shipped over to eating disorder and probably get um, diagnosed with like OSFED or some kind of, yeah. you know, um, general eating disorder. And then they get put in the kind of normal, the kind of eating disordery field. Um, and, and then, you know, they tend to have higher levels of muscle and maybe taking steroids. So their BMI is really high. And we know that in a lot of eating disorder services, you tend to get like judged based on how low your BMI is. So that's pretty much written off. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, and then even if they do, get help somehow a lot of um eating disorder services now i've wrote about this um in the british medical journal with um james downs who's fantastic you should get oh, him yeah james downs is a um, legend shout out to james <laughs> shout out to james um 
me and him uh, wrote a paper about this, um, talking about how a lot of eating disorder services are very feminized, um, and understandably so, because you know less than one percent of eating disorder research, as of two thousand and sixteen anyway, was on men or in- incorporated men in any way. So we don't we didn't know anything about men, and a lot of men you just aren't don't don't go to eating disorder services. They're not designed for them. Just to paint this picture. So this, this man who has issues with masculinity feels like he needs to be masculine, takes on these disordered eating and exercise behaviors in order to try and prove to himself and other people that he is masculine. He somehow within that sphere realizes he's got a problem, goes to get help. The doctor says, well, you've got something with food here, so you've probably got an eating disorder. Okay, go to the eating disorder service. He somehow with his higher BMI gets help. And then he gets put into an eating disorder service and he walks in and it's pink with butterflies and rainbows and you have nothing against pink butterflies, rainbows, but for someone who's struggling with, you're feeling like they need to be more masculine. That's, you know, that's everything they were afraid of. I mean, I would walk out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, this, then this is part of the problem is these people basically have nowhere to turn to some degree because everywhere is against them. Um, And it makes it really tough for them to get help. Absolutely. So it makes me wonder, like, where where does the change need to come from? Is it like our social norms about masculinity? Because what I find really interesting as well, okay, and I, I know it's all about how the person feels about themselves and like what how they've grown up and maybe like the norms that they've come to to believe about how they should be and what a man is and what a man looks like or feels like. But most of the girls I know they would say that they prefer like a dad board, you know, like if they were to give like the shredded kind of lean guy with a six pack or, you know, the guy who's got a crate of beer and a dad board, they'd probably be like, Oh, Mm. the crate of beer and a dad board because he's the one who comes across as being quite chilled out, you know, jokes, like really smiley, like approachable, maybe. Mm. Um, Maybe it's even because for the girls, it brings up less fear of having to be a certain way themselves. Because obviously, if you go for someone who's absolutely jacked, you're like, I need to to keep up and I need to stay in shape. Otherwise, they're going to go and get someone who's fitter or do you know Mm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I just find it interesting how, you know, if I think about what a man looks like to me, I don't go towards the kind of like the Hulk um, version of, of a human. I, I just think of an average kind of an average guy. <laughs> He's like, mm. do you know what I mean? It's no, yeah. interesting where these ideals come from and how we need to change them. Um, and I'm just thinking out loud now, but I wonder as well with kind of like culture around like divorce and now um, same sex marriages and things, what it's like for guys who maybe haven't had a male role model in their life or whose whose dads walked out on them um, from a young age or um, who haven't had a dad at all um, Mm. or got two mums like I wonder what their kind of ideas about masculinity and how these problems really presents in that population I mean there's there's a lot of lot of um, points there for me to to kind of touch on um I think the, the one I've, the one that's immediately come into my head um, from that, I did have another one, but it's now gone into the ether. Um, but the one about uh, people who don't have that kind of masculine role model. And you know, there's 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 some literature about um, this and the kind of you know, missing that kind of dad role. Um, and, and it does seem to link to a lot of, you know, like antisocial behavior and um, like poor mental health in general. And I think... Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, a very high percentage of people who are in prison tend to not have a 
dad or like not have had not had a male role model in their life out of the men anyway in prison well most of the people in prison are men as well but um you know it tend it seems that ha- not having that male role model does have a major impact on on men um and i i wouldn't yeah i, I suppose part of it is if you don't have that masculine role model and you're having to find masculinity in some kind of other way you may run the risk of finding this you know, your definition of masculinity from a dangerous place so you know like 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 gangs and like you know other like violence areas because yeah, that's the problem with masculinity itself is it can very easily be coerced into violence yeah. in that you know because it is often tied to pushing through pain and and endurance that very easily links to violence and and fighting and and things so I, I was just gonna say I wonder as well if, if they are lacking a role uh, have lacked a, a male role model in their life if there's also that feeling of like I need to step up and be the man mm. in the family like I I need to take that on and in order to do that I need to be bigger and I need to be more powerful and more strong um because of the other men in the life mm. in their life maybe haven't stepped up to that role that's just me thinking out loud that's really that's really that's a really cool point I like that yeah, because that's interesting then, because I, I would say that someone deciding to take on that and say, I'm going to be like the man, I'm going to you know, do these things, that could be a, a positive thing in certain ways and saying they're going to, you know, they that's a quite positive form of masculinity, I would say, and that I'm going to be caring and look after people. But I suppose then then the then what happens is the kind of the way the media has portrayed the masculine role in 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 general has been this idea of the heroic the you know the the this hero who puts his life at risk often is what the kind of male role model is in in media you know we we often quite talk we often talk about the the kind of the issues and and understandably so of how media is often said that the man is the hero and the women and the children are down here and they're the ones who need protecting and they're weak and whatever and that's obviously horrible and we're, we're doing a lot to work on that but one of the issues that comes with that dichotomy there as well is the man is supposed to be the hero the man's supposed to risk his life and and you know and that could be either by going to war or by you know pushing you're fighting the monster in a film or something or you know working you're giving up his life in order to to work loads and loads of hours because he needs to needs to provide or you know all these things and a lot of guys might not want to do that yeah Um, and that, that that's and that's part of this issue isn't it so you know in that story you just told about this guy who might then decide you know, it's his responsibility to take on this role of looking after people and looking after his family or whatever, that's really healthy. But then he gets tied into, oh, so then I have to work 70 hours a week to make sure I earn enough money or I need to you know, go out and fight for their stuff, even put myself at risk and, and things. And there's a lot of kind of issues there as well that, that come into this. So yeah, really good, really good point. With the kind of idea of you know toxic masculinity and having to push through pain and get that extra rep in and look a certain way and be a certain way do you think that also plays into kind of men going and getting help and thinking you know even making that first step because that takes a lot of vulnerability to be Mm. like actually do you know what I'm not okay and I need to go and talk to someone and often as well when you go and talk to someone probably going to be female I know a lot of the therapists are female then you've got to sit there and talk about your body and your eating with a girl mm-hmm. and that yeah. might not feel there's a lot of like obstacles to even seeking help for men yeah no I agree and yeah we, I, I think all of the literature that looks at the link between um, they call it like adherence to the masculine ideal or you know to people who like want to 
you know, stick to those masculine roles that they're, they're told tend to have negative perceptions of seeking help. So they tend to think that seeking help is weak. And, you know, it's it, like you say, it's you know, vulnerability is a bad thing. And, you know, it's a bad, bad idea to do that because you're almost it's betraying what your responsibility is. Your responsibility is to endure pain for the people around you, for the women and children has been the stereotypical way. So if you go and seek help, you're, you're betraying your, your role. You know, that that's what you've been, you have to do. Um, so, you know, so instantly, you know, there's no, there's no help seeking because you're going against, you know, it's, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, either carry on with this horrible pain and, and suffering or betray what you're supposed to do which is endure horrible pain and suffering <laughs> so. and I'm also thinking that you mentioned the word narcissism earlier and I have to say it's a love-hate word of mine I think at the moment as well it gets used quite a lot but as we know you very eloquently pointed out about grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism and one of the things that I remember about learning about narcissists and narcissism as a trait is it tends to be the grandiose narcissists. I think of kind of like the Trumps of the world who tend not to, they'll never know they have a problem. They'll never admit they have a problem because that goes against the grandiose narcissistic mindset. The vulnerable narcissist, however, does have the capability to understand that maybe they haven't got a healthy relationship with self um, and tend to be the ones who can help seek a little more. How do you see muscle dysmorphia and narcissism working together and in a way that can help people recover? Because it seems like the narcissism part would block even realising there's a problem. It's like the chicken and egg situation. What do we need to heal first? Very good question. Um, there hasn't been to my knowledge, any research that's looked further than the link between narcissist, like vulnerable narcissism and muscle dysmorphia. So I don't think we know kind of science, but just off my like thoughts, I suppose. I think, I think they're kind of like a reciprocal relationship. I think they strengthen each other um, in the sense that I don't think there's one way that we heal from it. I think with everything, you know, you people kind of go at it in different ways. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the key, one of the key aspects of vulnerable narcissism, as you pointed out, is that you know, they can be aware that there's a problem. And I think that's because they have that low sense of self-worth that is fueling that. And whether they're consciously aware of it or not, if someone points it out to them, they can go, oh, yeah, actually, I do feel a bit, I do think I'm not a very good person. And therefore, that's why I'm doing these things, really. Or, or they notice, you know, when people aren't talking about me, or they refuse to talk about the good things that I do, and the good things about me, I feel bad about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, and just from my own experience, the way that I didn't even like I got help through counseling and stuff and I didn't even have anything specific towards like disordered eating or my exercise or like my body or anything. We literally just talked about how I felt about myself. Like everything was just about who, like who I am and, and just being okay with who I am. And then those things just kind of fell away by the wayside because, you know, I didn't need to prove myself anymore because I had these other, you know, I, I felt good about other parts of me, these other things. But then I think in, in other in other ways as well, like I said, I'm still battling with it. I do think I semi-adopted other things to be my way of proving, you know, so like I, I want to be very um, you know, successful with my own minds and with my research and I, I want to be smart and I want to be, you know, all these other things that, that are different. But I guess the, the difference now is 
I did a podcast with um, Dr. Amy Aziki, um, who's fantastic. You should get her on at some point if you want to. Um, but she spoke about this idea of, um, she speaks a lot about athletes and athletes having kind of like um, mental health issues. And she spoke about how um, it's about having a pyramid rather than a pillar. And I had a pillar, which was the way my body looked and I trained and exercised was everything that the rest of my life stood on. So, you know, every all everything else in my life was stood on top of that, like a big pillar. And instead, what I did was I built and now built a pyramid where I have all these blocks at the bottom that I like and love about myself. And now if I do miss a gym session, well, it doesn't matter because I've got all these other bricks that are holding my pyramid up. Um, and I think that that's a really great way to kind of work on it because the main the main issue with muscle dysmorphia and, and with disordered eating and exercise and a lot a lot of anyway, I'm, I'm obviously very much generalizing here. But one of the the big issues is that it someone's is leaning entirely on that behavior. You know, I know the introduction to your podcast, you say, I'm a friend, I'm a, I am I forget what it, the things are exactly, but you know, those are great examples of those bricks on the pyramid. So what happens is now, if I miss a gym session or if my diet doesn't go, how I maybe wanted it to, even though I don't really do that anymore, but you know, um, I now have all the other bricks holding up my pyramid. What a very generalized term, very generalized explanation here, but what often is happening in disordered eating and exercise, and especially with compulsive exercise anyway, is that the issue is that someone's relying solely on that one thing. So it is their, it is their pillar. You know, if they're feeling distressed, they exercise, there's no other thing they can do to, to help with that. And that's when it becomes that compulsion or dependency. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. And I always talk about having like a, a coping toolkit and in that toolkit is lots of different things. There's maybe some days it is going for a walk or going and doing some lifting and, and other days that won't be appropriate. And maybe sometimes you just need to be a big duvet burrito and, you know, binge watch a Netflix series. Sometimes it might be picking up the phone and talking to a friend, but the, the bigger you can make that toolkit, like you said, means that you don't have anything on a pedestal. There isn't this like, oh, but I have to go and do this. And if you don't do it, it's linked to your sense of self-worth or mm. you can't cope. And it means that actually, or you slip into maybe other disordered behaviors like then restricting food or binge eating or substance abuse or something else, because you have this big toolkit that you know you can kind of delve into. I guess with that, it's also just seeing yourself as more as just your body and more than just like George, the guy who goes to the gym or, you know, I know for me and recovering from anorexia, part of why I loved to go traveling so much after I recovered was a chance to get out of my hometown and I wasn't joss with anorexia anymore it was just joss whoever i chose to be that day <laughs> like mm -hmm. joss who loves to climb joss who loves to swim whatever i wanted to do um and it wasn't like i didn't have that identity attached to me and again my pyramid was just bigger i was just building all those little blocks of different things that i love to do part of the reason why i find this research so interesting is because i draw so many similarities with my own experience um, and part of what I'm doing with my PhD is trying to look at the similarities between so many different people's experiences with these muscularity orientated things. Um, and one of the similarities that I have is this idea of this discrepancy in masculinity that I thought I had. So, you know, when I was a younger, my dad was known kind of in my hometown for being what we call hard as nails where I come from, you know, he was, you know, he was, he was, he's got two big scars on his face from, from playing rugby and he used to, 
play for the adult team when he was like 14, 13, something like that. You know, he's he just known for being this odd nut and he used to get in fights all the time and all that kind of stuff. And I have not that. I've never been in a fight other than one boxing fight, which we were talking about before the pod, um, where I where I literally... Where you I, I, friends. <laughs> I, tra- I, trained, I trained for a year to do boxing and um, I loved the sparring when we were kind of like practice fighting and just kind of, you know, having a good time. And when we were throwing like proper punches and stuff but you know we were having a laugh and then i went to do the actual fight and you know i was in the ring and this guy actually wanted to like hurt me and i was like i don't want to actually hurt him like i, I don't know i just it just i'm just I, yeah safe to say i'm just not i'm not that type of person i want to go to the um, pub instead yeah yeah exactly oh, exactly <laughs> and I, I want i like tried to get i think i think like before the fight started i tried to give him like a hug and he just kind of like re- semi-refused it and then you know it's just it's just like it was yeah but it's it's yeah um so i, I basically i found out that i'm not like that and that's what i kind of recognized when i was a kid and um, i've always been very emotional and i'm just not i'm just not a you know that kind of person um and a big yeah big part of why i did my um, muscularity stuff was to push that idea of masculinity onto people and show for you know, to myself and others that i was that and you know trying to prove that mm. um and a way that i got um help and a big big kind of step for me was reassessing that masculinity and what it what it was to be a man to me so it wasn't, you know, at the time it was, you're supposed to be violent and you're supposed to be able to, to be violent and you're supposed to, you know, um, assert yourself on other people always and always be, you know, I was constantly to the point where this is what I mean when I was saying I was a cunt earlier, like I, I fully embraced that I was um, because I'm not now. And that's kind of why I, I like talking about it because we can help people become less of a cunt. Um, but you know, it was the point where when I was walking down the street, I would be, if there was a, if there was a man walking the other way, I'd be so conscious of like, who's going to move, like who's going to move first to get out of the way. Like it's stuff like that. It's really stupid, like horrible stuff. Um, but you know, I reassessing that was a big part. So now, you know, masculinity to me now is, is understanding myself and, you know, being able to, to be honest and be, you know, be honest about the fact that I was, I didn't like who I used to be and that people wouldn't like who I used to be and being able to be honest about that. And that, you know, that strength, you know, if we want to use the kind of stereotypical masculine terms of strength, to be honest with myself and the strength to, to own that honesty and be like, you know, I'm, I am what, I am what I am, um, <laughs> you know, to, to be able to you know, own that. And, you know, that that's that this form of masculinity to me now. And, and you know, and that doesn't mean that I, I can't be assertive and I can't be, you know, the other things, but it's no longer through proving myself. It's through being myself. Yeah. It's, it's there's a difference there. And I quite like that. I, don't, I just came up with that off the, off the spot. Oh, it's so like, good. <laughs> I'm going to patent that. Yeah. Right. And I've just had like this weird thought, but like, <laughs> I feel like the whole toxic masculinity thing and the norms that we have in our society about being, like you said, like aggressive, assertive, bigger. If you're looking at like an evolutionary theory where everything's for reproduction and, you know, connection with each other, I just don't feel like it matches. Like, Mm. I feel like if you were to ask a girl, like what kind of guy she would like, then it's characteristics that would not be aggressive. You'd want someone who can show up for you, who's reliable, who's trustworthy, who's grounded, who who can talk, who can communicate, um, who takes accountability, um, who's supportive. Mm. And it feels like a lot of those characteristics aren't really seen within the kind of, some of them are, but like within the stereotypical masculine kind of mindset that goes with the kind of toxic masculinity 
But yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, some the one thing I was going to say earlier was it's really interesting that we uh, kind of went to attraction in the idea of like of it, this using masculinity as a way of attracting people, and mm-hmm. um, because that does tend to be where it kind of comes down to. And I've, I've not, I've, you know, I've been trying to think about it recently and i don't i haven't seen much literature about it but i do think it plays a role because for my experience again um cunt george back in the day um you know for me i only dated people purely because it looked good that was that was a big and that ended up manifesting in me being really jealous and and not being like a nice person to date because you know you know for, con- consciously i just thought i was in love with them and i was infatuated by them and i was so but really it was it was a fear of losing them because they prove to other people that I was manly because look look how attractive my girlfriend is you know that was all I that was the only reason I was dating people and that was a big part of you know what recovery brought to me was being able to have a relationship with someone and and not be terrified that they're going to leave me or something because it's no longer about them proving something for me it's about me just having a relationship with someone and and that you know that means that I have such a strong relationship now with my partner that you know, and that's something that wouldn't have come before. But again, and that, that shows that you know, attractions in there somehow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't quite thought about exactly how it does link just yet. Yeah. Um, but it is there. Definitely. And I think maybe it links with that self-worth as well and that worthiness of being loved. I know that that's definitely something that was there for me when I was struggling with my body image issues. But again, like, I'm sure like it's very different guys to girls, but I know for me, like going to the gym and be- doing all the bodybuilding especially back in like 2014 2015 was hugely about acceptance and and wanting to look desirable um for men and wanting to fit within their ideas of what they wanted a girl to be like at the time or you know it was trying to fit in and trying to kind of show that I was worthy of love and but it is also and yeah thank you for sharing that and it is also good to kind of, I suppose, to mention that although I am often referring to men when I talk about his experiences, and that's because most of the research has been done on men, this does also happen in, in women and, and and people who are gender non-conforming and trans. And I think it happens in any gender. In fact, we we there is research looking at um, transgender and some of the kind of links with that. And it actually seems that, although the most recent paper I read showed um, slightly different things, but it tends to be that there's this idea of, forget the word they use but um basically it seems to be that especially in trans men the the research seems to link to this idea of having to kind of prove their masculinity by being more you know if you if you've you kind of transitioned to being a man and you're wanting to show masculinity in some kind of way it seems to be linked to muscle dysmorphia because again these muscle is masculine so i have to kind of prove that i'm a man in some kind of way and is there's so there does seem to be some kind of link with that as well but it is also shown in women as well it's kind of shown in in all genders and i wonder and it's interesting again thinking out loud more food for thought for you um (laughs) if the kind of the in muscle dysmorphia in women if it's also linked with like hyper independence this kind of attitude of I don't need a man and whether that is linked also to women who've had bad experiences traumatic experiences with men um sexual assault anything like that and that kind of feeling of I can defend myself I don't need you um because that now this kind of like muscle mummy attitude is coming in more and more and it's interesting to see how it's changing with the kind of changing in dynamics, the changing in relationships. 
that's so cool that you said that because yeah, I don't, yeah people obviously can't see the video but I was doing that double thumbs up when Joss was saying that because <laughs> it, you pretty much like described this study and um, you remember I meant I mentioned the kind of um life analysis of the men with high drive for muscle before yeah. they did the same one on women and what they found were really common kind of thread was what they termed ontological security which is like you know, what am I defined as in this world? So they defined themselves as the muscle mummy, or they define themselves as this woman who's going against societal norms and being muscular and, and, you know, saying fuck the system and all, all that stuff. But so there is that tends to be that difference there, but it's quite, it's funny because all the things you were saying were basically what they wrote about this, that they found in the study. So yeah, expert um, intuition. PhD on my way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so just coming to the end, because I think like our listeners, um, probably getting a bit bored with our voices now. Um, <laughs> but uh, what is the title of your PhD? Have you? Is that something you start with, or is that something you end with? <laughs> there, there is a title um, that I was. I'm, I'm shit at titles. I always have been. I always just basically just write out what the study is in the big paragraph and say that's the title. And um, someone did give it a really nice title for me, and I've forgotten what it is. So I don't know. Um, but I can tell you. I can tell you very kind of briefly what it's about, um, which I've kind of said. But it, it's. I am looking at um, care and help seeking within muscularity oriented issues. So, and specifically in men. So that kind of idea that I spoke about before with that, that guy who um, can't seek help at first because of masculinity and because of the fitness ideals and this idea of pushing through pain and all these things, um, you know, how can we get them to seek help and what links to help seeking with him? And then also if he does seek help, I'm looking at what is available there and you know, what actually is there and i've studied i published a study recently where we looked at um eating disorder service professionals and looked at their opinions of eating disorders in men and a lot of them spoke about this almost like fear of not a feeling or you know they felt concerned if a man came in because they didn't know what to do because it was so different and they weren't they were unprepared and things and so what my phd is looking at is this idea of yeah how can we get men to seek help more and when they do seek help what's available and basically trying to i'm trying to help on both sides so write some guidelines and different things for organizations and businesses to help with that that's incredible oh it's Mm -hmm. it's so needed and I'm really excited to see where everything goes for you and what opens up and if a new I don't know if a new business venture and eating disorders for men needs to start out you've got a employee right here waiting for you who will jump on with that (laughs) (laughs) amazing um Last question, and it's a random one, but if you had to choose between hummus and guacamole, what would it be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, this is why I'm hum- single. <laughs> hummus, hummus. Ooh, I al- yeah, I always eat hummus. I like I like using hummus almost like a like a mayo. Like I put mm-hmm. it on my sandwiches. Like I yeah. just use it as yeah, like a sauce. Just to yeah, I love a bit of hummus. Amazing. thank Thank you you so much for joining me today george as always i will post all of george's links to his instagram his website in the show notes and as always guys please give this podcast a rating and a review it really supports the free content i produce for you and until next time stay happy and stay healthy 